Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Giving Wealth, Getting Faith, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 13, 2008. While exercising at the gym recently, I noticed someone reading a magazine called More. The title of the magazine reminded me of an experiment that I read about some time ago. Imagine that you are presented with two options for your salary. First, you could choose $50,000 a year while everyone else earns $25,000. Or second, you could earn $100,000 a year while other people get $250,000 a year. Which option would you choose? Studies show that most people choose the first option. They would rather have less money, but know that they're making more than their friends. Having more than others, and not just having a lot or even merely enough, seems very important to many people. In the readings for this week, Luke's descriptions of the first Christians show that they cared about giving more than getting. We read in Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Later in Acts chapter 4, Luke describes how no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Barnabas, in particular, we read, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. A few pages later, Luke describes financial assistance for widows, Acts chapter 6, and famine relief efforts, Acts eleven twenty nine. These first believers made the choices they did because of their vivid memories of Jesus and his warnings about wealth. Jesus described riches as an obstacle to the kingdom of God, Luke 18.24. When the tax collector Zacchaeus was converted, he vowed to give half of his possessions to the poor, Luke 19.8. And the rich, whereas the rich give out of their surplus, said Jesus, a poor widow gave of her poverty all she had to live on, Luke 21.4. Some people dismiss Luke's descriptions of wealth divestment as a utopian dream or an unattainable standard. In fact, there are many believers who live this dream, both ancient and modern. A generation or two after the events described by Luke, the theologian Justin Martyr summarized the appeal of Christian community. We who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property 
Now share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs, now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. Tertullian similarly wrote about the Christians' well-known and well-deserved reputation for socioeconomic generosity that built bridges of community rather than walls of separation. Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy, wrote Tertullian. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. Even the pagan emperor Julian the Apostate, who ruled from 361 to 363, who had been raised as a Christian but renounced his faith, and who vehemently opposed Christians and stripped them of their rights, he acknowledged the godless Galileans feed not only their own poor, but ours also. Those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them. If we fast forward to today, Gary Wills observes in his book, What Jesus Meant, that giving more than getting has a long, strong tradition among Christians. Among Eastern monks, the First Franciscans, the Shakers, Catholic workers, worker priests, base communities in Latin America, and Christian communities like Jonah House. The Catholic Worker Movement, for example, was founded by Dorothy Day and Peter Morin in 1933. It espouses a strong belief in the God-given dignity of every human being. Today, over 185 Catholic worker communities remain committed to nonviolence, voluntary poverty, prayer, and hospitality for the homeless, exiled, hungry, and the forsaken. The early Christian monastics were especially insightful about faith and wealth. All Christians should avoid greed, give generously, care for the poor, and cultivate contentedness. Hebrews 13 verse 5. For the early monastics, the means to reach these goals were clear. The complete shedding of possessions, as they called it, detachment, and renunciation of wealth. But just like with food and fasting, although we have a single goal, the avoidance of gluttony and the cultivation of self-control, the monks knew that it's difficult to outline one single rule or means for everyone to reach the goal because of any number of personal circumstances such as age, stage of life, health, and family commitments. And so they didn't prescribe total renunciation of wealth, sex, or food for every single Christian. They viewed such total renunciation as voluntary and personal. Besides, there were a number of wealthy women who supported Jesus, Luke chapter 8, 2-3. And Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man, we read, who tenderly buried Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 57. Nevertheless, flattering the rich was a constant temptation for ancient monastics. 
In one of my favorite texts, the monk St. Nilus uses a hilarious and deeply ironic image to describe how Christians, quote, come fawning to the rich like puppies wagging their tails in the hopes of being tossed a bare bone or some crumbs. To get what we want, we call them benefactors and protectors of Christians, attributing every virtue to them, even though they may be utterly wicked, end quote. What I most appreciate about the monastics and money is their deep insight about the psychological subtleties and complexities that surround mammon and how these nuances play out in our minds. Listen to Evagrius. The demon of avarice, it seems to me, is extraordinarily complex and is baffling in his deceits. Often, when frustrated by the strictness of our renunciation, the demon immediately pretends to be a steward and a lover of the poor. He urges us to prepare a welcome for strangers who have not yet arrived, or to send provisions for absent brethren. He makes us mentally visit prisons in the city and ransom those on sale as slaves. He suggests that we should attach ourselves to wealthy women, and advises us to be obsequious to others who have a full purse. And so, after deceiving the soul, little by little he engulfs it in avaricious thoughts, and then hands it over to the demons of self-esteem. The latter calls up in our imagination crowds of admirers who praise the Lord for the works of mercy we have done. Clearly, according to Evagrius, the real spiritual battle with money occurs in our hearts, our souls, and our minds. So much so that the monks repeatedly quote 1 Timothy 4.8, which says that outward renunciation is of little help, and it should be followed, but true godliness takes place in the heart. The ascetic renunciation of material things like money is at its best only an outward sign of the more important inward struggle, says Maximus. The war which the demons wage against us by means of thought is more severe than the war they wage against us by means of material things, says Maximus. Living faithfully with money is no easier for a monk or more difficult for someone trading financial futures in the pits of the Chicago Board of Trade. The, the monastic councils are for all Christians, not just a spiritual elite who live behind monastic walls. In this respect, writes Callistus, where the distinction between the monastic life and life in the world is but relative. Every human being, by virtue of the fact that he or she is created in the image of God, is summoned to be perfect, is summoned to love God with all his or her heart, soul, and mind. In this sense, all have the same vocation, and all must follow the same path. The path with its goal is one and the same, whether followed within or outside a monastic environment. And that's a path that includes our money. 
And now for further reflection. Consider the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Or Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. When Paul sought the approval of the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, he says, quote, The only thing they asked us to do was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And for further reading, see Ron Sider's classic work, Rich, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Jacques Ellul, Money and Power. Justo Gonzalez, Faith and Wealth, A History of Early Christian Ideas on the Origins, Significance, and Use of Money. And finally, Craig Blomberg, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions. For books this week, I review Gary Wills, what the Gospels Meant, New York, Viking, 2008, 209 pages. With five books on St. Augustine, and his book Lincoln at Gettysburg, 1993, that won the Pulitzer Prize, Gary Wills remains one of our country's most public and outspokenly Christian intellectuals. Today he is Professor of History Emeritus at Northwestern University. In a book called What Jesus Meant, 2006, Wills tried to recapture the radically subversive life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Quote, Jesus intended to reveal the Father to us and to show that he is the only begotten Son of the Father, what he signified is always more challenging than we expect, more outrageous, more egregious, end quote. Then, in 2007, in a companion volume called What Paul Meant, he argued that what Paul meant was not something other than or contrary to what Jesus meant, but that we can best find out the latter by studying the former. Paul's letters stand closer to Jesus, says Wills, than do any other words in the New Testament. The present volume, What the Gospels Meant, obviously forms a trilogy with the first two. Unfortunately, it doesn't offer much more than a similar title. Like the first two volumes, Wills writes on a popular level for a general readership. That's a commendable undertaking for a scholar of his erudition. But in a book so short, he does little more than glide across the surface of complex matters. Luke's genealogy, for example, and the visit of the Magi get a little over one page each. The virgin birth in Matthew, about two pages. Each of the Beatitudes gets a sentence or two. And, of course, brevity requires him to skip entirely much of the Gospels. Wills admits, and it's no understatement, that he quotes very genuine, generously and almost exclusively from the renowned scholar Raymond Brown.
As in his previous two books, he makes his own translations from the original Greek in order to recapture what he calls the rough-hewn majesty and brutal linguistic earthiness of the Koine Greek in which the gospel story was originally written. In contrast to the overfamiliar and churchly idiom of so many Bible translations, lots of times Wills's translations work, but at other times I think he tries too hard, as when he translates the beatitude in Luke chapter six twenty-two to twenty-three, "Happy you whom men hate, and cast out and revile, and blacken your name for the Son of Man's sake." At such a time, take heart and be frisky. Or John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became human flesh, and bivouacked with us. After a short introduction, in which he describes the nature of the gospel material, Wills devotes three chapters each to Mark, report from the suffering body of Jesus, Matthew, report from the teaching body of Jesus, Luke, report from the reconciling body of Jesus, and then John, report from the mystical body of Jesus. His aim, he says, is to, quote, suggest the goal, method, and style of each evangelist. Throughout the book, he compares and contrasts the four writers, and when he see fits, he corrects them. Wills repeatedly highlights what he calls the basic meaning of Jesus as found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. As my first concern, I pass on to you what has been passed on to me, that Messiah died for our sins in accord with the sacred writings, that he was buried and that he arose on the third day in accord with the sacred writings. Such, says Wills, is the basic announcement of Christian proclamation, the nucleus that gave birth to the Gospels. And we read those Gospels today, he says in the very last sentence of the book, as a whole, with the reverence they derive from and address, yet with the intelligence God gave us to help us find him. Gary Wills, What the Gospels Meant For film this week, I review a German film called The Tunnel from the year 2001. In the 1960s, there were dozens of tunnels dug beneath the Berlin Wall that was erected in August of 1961. This docudrama tells the story of one of the first and more famous tunnels. Hasso Herschel, renamed Harry Melchior in this film, was a famous swimmer in East Germany who walked across Checkpoint Charlie in disguise and with a fake passport on August 26, 1961, just two weeks after the wall was built and he had become a national sports hero. Having already spent four years in prison, he had had quite enough. That much is made clear in the first 15 minutes of the film. 
The next two hours recount how he and his companions dug a tunnel 15 to 20 feet deep and 500 feet long back into East Germany and then helped more than a thousand people escape to freedom in the next 20 years. Each person has their own story of fear, compromise, accommodation, regret, and bravery, including the ominous Stasi agent, Herr Kruger. At 167 minutes, this film is way too long, but it's a grim reminder of political oppression and the human will for freedom and family that oppression provokes. In German, with English subtitles, The Tunnel, from the year 2001. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted another poem by Prudentius. Prudentius was the Roman poet who lived from 348 to 413. The title of his poem or hymn this week is called Now with Creation's Morning Song. Now with creation's morning song let us as children of the day with wakened heart and purpose strong the works of darkness cast away. O may the morn so pure, so clear its own sweet calm in us instill a guileless mind, a heart sincere, simplicity of word and will. And ever as the day glides by, may we the busy senses reign, keep guard upon the hand and eye, nor let the conscience suffer stain. Grant us, O God, in love to Thee, clear eyes to measure things below, faith the invisible to see, and wisdom thee in all to know. Now with Creation's Morning Song by Prudentius. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 13, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.